we had a couple of things left over from the other day that we didn't finish. We were around verse 26. Remember some of the basic themes in Deuteronomy. Having trouble with this, but you got to turn it on first. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy eleven, Deuteronomy eleven, verse twenty-six is where we'll start in just a moment. And remember some major themes in Leviticus eleven. Leviticus eleven talks about what God has done for the people in the past, uh, what He has given them, how He has blessed them, and how He is about to bless them in the future about giving them the land. They are called, the people are called to love God with all their heart, to keep his commandments. And they are also told the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. We talked about that the other day. The blessings of obedience, the curses of disobedience. But let's pick up with verse 26. See, I am setting before you today... A blessing and a curse. Now Moses is going to say that again in chapter 30 verse 19. But I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandment of the Lord your God. Which I'm commanding you today. And the curse if you do not listen to the commandment of the Lord your God. But turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today. By following other gods which you have not known. It shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it. Then you shall place the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not uh, across the Jordan west uh, of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah opposite Gilgal beside the oaks of of Morah? For you are about to cross the Jordan in order to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall possess it and live in it. And you'll be careful to do all the statutes and all the judgments which I am setting before you today. So, I am setting before you the blessing and the cursing. He says, this is what's going to happen and this is how you will be blessed if you are faithful. But if you are unfaithful, this is what will happen to you. And these are the cursings. And he says in verse in verse 27, here's the blessing if you're obedient. In verse 28, the 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 curse curses if you're not obedient. If you turn away from following the Lord, and notice particularly in verse 28, <clears throat> That if they are unfaithful in in turning to the Lord or serving the Lord, it says that that you are following other gods. The, The assumption is that that's going to be the first failure. That they're going to worship other gods, they're going to serve other gods. And, but God is about to bring you into the land. And you're going to stand on Mount Gerizim uh, and pronounce the blessings and on Mount Ebal and pronounce the curses. Now, we're going to see more of that. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal. Uh, We will see these two mounts. Mentioned in chapter 27. 
In Deuteronomy 27, the people will, it tells which tribes are to stand on which mountain, and they are to pronounce these blessings and curses. We see a fulfillment of this in Joshua 8, verses 30 through 35. Uh, Mount Gerizim, or Gerizim, and Mount Ebal, uh, these are near Shechem, which was one of the places that God first promised the land to Abraham and one of the places where he first built an altar. So in these places where God first built the land and first made the promises, in these places they're going to stand and pronounce the blessings and curses. And these mountains will be a continual reminder to them of the blessings that will accrue to them if they are obedient and the curses that will fall upon them if they're disobedient. Every time they see these mountains, they are reminded of the blessings of obedience and the consequence of disobedience. Mount Gerizim is later a place where the Samaritans built a temple. By New Testament times, it had been destroyed by the Jewish people around 110, 120, 110 BC. It had been destroyed. But you remember the Samaritan woman in John 4 says, We worship in this mountain, and you say Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus teaches about worshiping in spirit. And in truth, but this was Mount Gerizim, the place where the Samaritans built their temple. And I believe it was Carrie telling me the other day that she visited there. And there's still a group of Samaritans that practice that particular religion. Now, I ask you to, uh, to, to give me information uh, on this. And uh, to do your homework diligently, Josh sent me, Josh Sater sent me uh, a good bit of information about uh, these places. And uh, I had forgotten uh, that Craig had told me a couple of things that they are trying to, to do uh, in connection with these, this Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So Craig is going to speak to us for a few minutes about these mountains. Uh, we put him on a strict time schedule, uh, seven or eight minutes. Um, I offered him all of Bob's class Sunday of seven or eight minutes tonight, and he took, um, he took the seven or eight minutes. And um, so Craig's going to speak a little bit about these mountains. I guess you need the microphone. I've said what I'm going to say. Oh. <laughs> Um, so, this is, this is really interesting that this is what we've been studying because if you've been following any kind of archaeological news recently, Mount Ebal is all they've been talking about as far as uh, archaeological findings in Israel. Um, so what you're looking at is the remains of a rectangular altar that was found in an area of Mount Ebal. So if you remember 
Mount Gerizim is where the blessings occurred, and Mount Ebal is where the, the cursings occurred. As Tommy said, we get a lot more detail about that in, in chapters 27. Uh, but they, and there was a man named Adam uh, Zatal, who back in like 1982, 1984, um, their team of archaeologists uncovered this rectangular altar. And um, many considered this to be proof uh, that the Israelites had occupied this area and used it for sacrificial systems. But the dating of the rectangular altar was more like the judges' time period. Um, as more digging was done, they've actually determined that there is, and this is a drawing looking on top of this, but they have determined that there is a circular altar underneath of the rectangular altar, which matches the description that we're getting. They built an altar of uncut stones, covered it in plaster. They have found plaster in and around this area, and it's, it's at a, a time period, um, 1402 BC, something like that, that seems to be a, a approximately time period of Joshua. Um, why this has been in the news recently is, in addition to the altar, and the Egyptian scarabs that they found in this place. Why would Israelites have Egyptian scarabs during the time of Joshua? Um, they have, uh, within the last, let's see, I think it was 2019, within the last two or three years, a team led by Dr. Scott Stripling and the Associates for Biblical Research um, came back to that site they were not allowed to do any additional digging, but they were allowed to sift through the discarded material. So every time they did and uncover things, they very meticulously log the piles of dirt. Um, and they keep track of them and protect them. And so there were several discarded piles. If you guys recognize Dr. Scott Stripling, we've had an opportunity to, to visit uh, Shiloh and other places in Israel uh, when our team is not over there. And so, well-respected guy, he's done some incredible work, especially with Shiloh. But he and his team went and sifted through that material and found this thing, and this is what's been buzzing in the news, is this lead tablet. And it is kind of, it's not large. But what's fascinating about this lead tablet, and you're seeing different angles of the same item. So you're seeing the front and the back, and it kind of laying on the side. But if you'll notice, there's a seam because this thing was actually open and an inscription made on the inside of it. It was then folded and sealed. It was not intended to be opened up again. And what has got people really excited is it is what is known as a cursed tablet. Inside of this tablet are markings eliciting a curse on someone. Mount Ebal is the place where they had curses. This is why they're getting really excited about it is because this tablet is being dated to that older time period, that period of that circular altar, ideally the period of Joshua's time, and it is the oldest mention of YHW Yahweh. It's the oldest inscribed uh, mention of Yahweh found in Israel thus far. Even if it's dated to the earlier time of that rectangular altar, which is about 200 years removed, it's still the oldest mention of Yahweh. 
and people are very excited about this. As if that weren't exciting enough, the characters used in this tiny little stuff, and we say tablet, and my brain does this. Yeah, tablet, no, it's this tiny little thing. And they used styluses, very fine-tipped styluses back then, to write very small characters. And there are about 40 characters written on this tablet. And uh, what it says when translated is cursed, 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 cursed by the God Yahweh. You will die cursed. Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed by Yahweh. Cursed, cursed, cursed. This is not, in case you're wondering, a quotation of Scripture. <laughs> it's not. That would be mind-blowing. But what it is, is it, a, it is an elicit, uh, eliciting a curse by the name of God at Mountain of Cursing, written in the oldest known Hebrew characters. They call it proto-alphabetic, um, and they call it proto-Hebrew. And this is why, the main reason why everyone's getting stirred up about this. One of the main criticisms of the first five books of the Bible, and, and we believe, you know, we believe traditionally that, that Moses wrote those first five books. One of the main criticisms of secular scholars is there's no way Moses could have done that. The Hebrews weren't smart enough to have a written language back then. There's no proof, they say, of a text, a full alphabet that the Hebrews could have used during the period of Moses. If this is in fact dated to the time of Joshua, and they're peer reviewing this thing, it's not for sure yet. But if it does date to the time of Joshua, that's within a generation of Moses, they very clearly have a full alphabet. And there are a lot of people in the secular archaeological world that don't want this to be dated to that earlier time period. Um, so, what's exciting is that people are still finding these things. Uh, what's exciting is that um, what they are finding never contradicts what we read in the scripture. It never, it, it, you're never going to find something in the ground that says this one thing proves that the entire book is, is legit. I don't believe, I just don't believe that that exists. Um, even, I think, if they found the Ark of the Covenant, someone would still find a reason why I have to believe the rest of the book. But this is one of the, even uh, news outlets in Israel we're putting this potentially on par with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls as far as how much it could potentially impact our understanding of the Bible. Um, that's all I've got coming as far as okay. the ball is concerned. Well, thank you. And uh, I hope that's of interest to you all. Um, we have a couple of videos on our channel, but honestly, just Google Mountain Ball Curse Tablet and everybody's talking about it, and it's fascinating. Okay, well, thank you very much. And, uh, you see how uh, they confirm something, found something archaeologically that associates these very places with the very type thing that Scripture attributes to them. I think that itself is fascinating. And uh, so thank you very much for that, Craig. Now we're going to try the rest of our time is to be rushed to look into Deuteronomy 12. Um, Bob is, Lord willing, going to try to cover Deuteronomy 13 on Sunday. But 
Deuteronomy 12. And some of the things that are, that are big in Deuteronomy 12, one of the things that is really key in this chapter is the idea of the place where the Lord will establish His name. That is running all through this particular section and the rest of Deuteronomy. There will be, and um, I had I've written them, I believe, all down. Right now we'll just deal with the six from this chapter. But I believe there are 21 references in the rest of Deuteronomy to the place the Lord chooses, the place the Lord will establish His name. In this chapter, you see it in 5, in 11, in 14, in 18, in 21, in 26. And and we'll see more of what that means uh, as we go throughout the text. A central place of worship. But let's begin in verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their names from that place. You shall not act like this toward the Lord your God. But the place you shall seek, the Lord your God, which the Lord uh, your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for a dwelling. There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hands, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Okay, let's say some things about that. We emphasize the place where the Lord would establish his name in verse 5. Notice the place where the Lord will establish his name is in contrast, in contrast to the places in verse 2, where the places, where the nations worship their God. The nations worship their gods in places, and when you encounter these Places and you encounter these gods, you will utterly destroy them. They are specified in verse 2 as being the high mountains and the hills and the green trees. Now it was common to build temples on mountains. That happened even in the land of Israel. A temple was built on the mountain. 
uh, because it was viewed as high up, a connection between uh, the heavens and the earth almost. You often read these phrases about people worshiping on the hills and the green trees in various places uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, let me give you some of the passages where you see that kind of language. Uh, you see that kind of language in Jeremiah 2, verse 20, Jeremiah 3, uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 20, Jeremiah 3, verse 6, Jeremiah 3, verse 13. You see it used in the book of Kings, in 1 Kings 14, verse 23. There are a lot more references than that. These other nations put their gods on the hills and the green trees because these places represented fertility. And a lot of times these gods were fertility gods, nature gods, that were believed to make the nature produce. Uh, and so they would worship in these places. Israel often fell to the same thing. But you are to utterly destroy their places of worship. Verse 2. In verse 3, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their asherim. Notice in verse 3, he says, obliterate their name. Obliterate their name. Their name is to be forgotten. The name of these gods. In contrast to obliterating their name in verse 3, God was going to establish His name in verse 5. So what God is doing is the opposite of really what the Canaanites did. There were many places of worship. These are to be destroyed. There's going to be a place where God will establish His name. And God will establish His name and eliminate the gods of the pagans in verse 5. And it says in verse 5, you shall seek, you shall seek the place which the Lord your God shall choose. Now this word seek is used twice in this chapter. It's also used in verse 30. In verse 30, beware that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying, how do, you, how do the nations serve their gods that I may do likewise? Okay, what I'm trying to say, the word inquire in verse 30 is from the same Hebrew word as seek in verse 5. Verse 5 is emphasizing seeking the Lord. But they are not to inquire about how the nations worship their God. You're not to seek the gods of the pagan. You're not to seek the gods of the Canaanite. You are to seek the Lord and the place where He will establish for His name to be. And this chapter does not state, it, it repeatedly emphasizes the place where the Lord will establish His name. As we stated in verse 5, verse 11, verse 14, verse 18, 21, and 26. 
What does it mean? Well, one thing it means, this is where they bring their sacrifices and their offerings. I want you to notice, either right before or right after these verses, there's almost always a mention of the sacrifices that were brought to these places. So look at verse 6. Right after mentioning the place the Lord will establish His name, then you bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hands, your votive offers, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and flock. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but it is meant to tell us the type of thing that is done at this place where the Lord will establish His name. They bring their sacrifices, they bring their tithes, they bring their offerings. Verse 11 mentions the place where the Lord will choose. And verse 11 also says, in verse 11, It shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God shall choose for His name to dwell, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, etc. The list in verse 11 is not as extensive as the list in verse 5, but it's meant to cover the same kind of things. In verse 13 and 14, be careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place you see, but in the place the Lord chooses in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. Same thing you see in verse 18. The same thing uh, in verse uh, 21 and in verse 26 and 27. I think this shows us the reason there was to be a central place of worship. The central place of worship was to cut down, was to cut down on the problem of idolatry. Now we're going to see cases in the Old Testament where people worship on the high places. They worship in the hills. They worship the great trees. Sometimes they just worship the Lord. But after a while this degenerates into them worshiping the gods of the nations that were worshipped in those places. God does this and says there's going to be one place of worship. There's going to be one place of worship. And you're going to bring these gifts here. That God does this to cut down on idolatry. First of all, let me ask an obvious question. Does God have the right in telling us where he wants to be worshipped? Yeah. God has a right to do that. Now, where was the place? This chapter never names the place where God will establish His name. Where was that place? Okay. Shiloh is what Tony said. Jerusalem. There are several places, Shiloh being one of them, before the temple is built. And after the temple is built, Jerusalem is the place. It is hard sometimes to keep up with what the religious center of the nation was. 
Here are a couple of them, okay? We're talking about the place where the Lord established His name. This could be where the tabernacle is and eventually where the temple is. It seems like that in... Um, it seems when we are in Joshua 24 that it is Shechem. It seems like when we are in Judges 20, that it is Bethel. Then it becomes Shiloh, particularly in the first four chapters of 1 Samuel. But ultimately, it comes to Jerusalem. That this is the place where the Lord's name is established. Now, this chapter will go on to reveal what some of the things that mean. Does that mean if they ever kill an animal and want to eat meat, they have to take it to the temple? No, no. Doesn't mean that. And that is specified as not being the meaning in verses 15 and 16. First of all, in 15 and 16, however, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gaze. Within any of your gaze. Now keep that phrase in mind. Whatever you desire, according to the blessing which the Lord your God, which He has given you, the unclean and clean may eat of it as the gazelle and the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood. You're to pour it out on the ground like water. So within any of your gates, you may eat meat. You can eat the gazelle. You can eat the deer. They're both mentioned in verse 15. They'll both be mentioned in verse 22. But also, they can eat in verse 21 of their herd. And their flock, they can eat of animals that they would offer in sacrifice. So they can eat meat in any place. What was the qualification? What was the thing you're not to do? Eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. Don't eat the blood. It goes back to Genesis 9 when God gave man the right to eat meat. But you can eat this in any of your places. Now, verse 20 is going to Expand on this a little bit more. Verse 20. When the Lord your God extends your border as he's promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you desire to eat meat, then you may eat meat, whatever you desire. If the, the place which the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, then you may slaughter of your herd or flock which the Lord your God has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat meat within your gates, whatever you desire. Just as a gazelle or deer is eaten, so you shall eat it. The unclean and the clean alike may eat it. Only be sure not to eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the ground like water. You shall not eat it in order that it may be well with you and your sons after you for you will be doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. So, does it mean that they probably did not eat meat that 
frequent because of their many herds and flocks. Uh, they wanted to keep these uh, as much as they could, but they have the right to do that. You don't have to go to the central sanctuary to eat meat. There's the recognition you may want to eat meat in verse 21 that it may be too far. But it's a different matter when you bring sacrifice. When you bring sacrifice, you go to the temple. Now I want you to notice the contrast between verse 15 and verse 17. Verse 15, when it was talking about eating meat, it said, However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates. But look at verse 17. You are not allowed to eat within your gates the tie of your new wine, your grain, or new wine, or oil, or the firstborn of your herd or flock. In your city, in the gates of your city, you can eat meat. But you can't eat the firstborn of your tithe. Or the, excuse me. Uh, you can't eat the tithe of the grain, new wine, or oil, or the firstborn of your herd and flock. They are brought to the sanctuary. As they are brought to the temple where the Lord establishes His name. That is a reminder to them that God is the source. Of all these things. God's a source of these blessings. And I'm bringing the tithe, the grain, the new wine, and the oil, the first of my flock, the first of my herd. I'm bringing them to the Lord, to the central sanctuary, as a reminder that He is the source of all these gifts. Psalm 50 was the psalm. That we went over last night. In Psalm 50, God said, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. Every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. God is not calling us to worship because of something He needs, because of what we need. And the people needed to make these trips needed to bring their tithe of their grain and new wine and oil to the Lord, to the temple, to the tabernacle, to the place where God established His name. They needed to do that as a reminder that He is the source of their every gift. He is the one responsible for all their blessings. Now when they brought their tithe, when they brought their tithe, it was also an opportunity to provide for the poor in the land. Did you notice that? Look at verse 12. You shall rejoice. And the note of rejoicing is all through this chapter and all through this section of Deuteronomy. There is joy in worshiping the Lord. But you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion or inheritance. Well, why are the male and female servants mentioned? Why are the Levites mentioned? Because they shared what God had given them with these who were poor 
and needy. In verse 18, it mentions again your male and female servants and the Levite within your gates. In verse 19, you shall not forsake the Levite as long as he lives. When we get to chapter uh, 14 and it talks more about the tithe, it will emphasize that it's an opportunity to help the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Uh, These are opportunities where they give to God, recognizing that all blessings are from Him, and recognizing that God is freely given to them, they freely share with other people. Now, I know this is a big chapter, and um, we just touched on a little, though we're trying to hit some of the main points. What questions do you all have right here? Any questions, any ideas? Yes. It just seems to me like God, he went to such great lengths to establish his proper name, the one and only. I just don't understand that's why we don't use it. Instead of, I mean, people know it and they repeat it. The Jews to this day won't use it. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, they're afraid of it. And yes. Well, a couple of things I would say to that, Nina. First of all, is uh, we, one of the reasons we don't use it all the time is because the Jews were afraid to pronounce it, and, and for good reason. For, for good reason, lest they take it in vain. We're not sure exactly how it was pronounced. Um, if you had an old American standard, and there may not be a person living in this audience that has an American standard. Think of it. Josh does. But what is the translation? Wilma does too, she said. But what is the translation that they will use of Yahweh? Jehovah. 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 And what Jehovah does is takes the consonants of Yahweh and then the vowel pointings of another Hebrew word for Lord. Adonai and combines them. And so it was really a made up word, Jehovah. And, and, and I don't choose to make that my main point in talking with people who describe themselves as followers of Jehovah. But sometimes when they are emphasizing, and I just emphasize that really that is a hybrid word. You've taken parts of two words and kind of uh, jammed them together. Um, I think the main point, though, we use the term Yahweh quite a bit. I mean, you all familiar with that term. doesn't floor you when we use it. But I think the main thing is to have respect and awe and glory at the God who reveals himself by this name. Whether we just speak of him as God, uh, whether we speak of him as Yahweh, and I'm not mocking people who use the term Jehovah. I, I would be cautious against saying that's the only term you can use, as some would say. But, but I'm not mocking people who use that term. Because, but we want to stand in reverence of a God whose name is represented by that. And, and by the way, I, I may have said this in this audience, but no, I've said it in others here. How do you know 
when you have the word Yahweh used in Hebrew? How do you know that in your English translation? Okay, you have all capital letters. You have all capital letters. And I think, I don't know if the older King James did that. I think every other one does. Does the older King James do it? Does anyone? I'm just, I'm not recalling offhand. But, but most every translation, and they may. But I think every other translation does that in the Old Testament. Um, yes, Anne? No, no, not absolutely for sure. Uh, and, and that is the best kind of estimation, yes. Um, I want you to notice how in verse 25, the text emphasizes about, it says about eating blood, you shall not eat it in order that it may be well with you, with your sons after you, for you will be doing right what is right in the sight of the Lord. The same statement is made in verse 28 when it's talking about uh, not uh, drinking the blood but pouring it out at the altar. Uh, be careful to listen to these words which I command you in order that it may be well with you, with your sons after you forever. For you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. But I want to emphasize doing what's good and right in the eyes of the Lord, in verse 25 and in verse 28, notice that in contrast to verse 8. In verse 8, you shall not do at all what we are doing here today, every man, whatever is right in his own eyes. In contrast to doing simply what's right in your own eyes, particularly with this God establishing a place for his name to be worshipped, Instead of doing what's right in your own eyes, you are to do what is right in God's eyes. And when I mention that phrase, doing what is right in your own eyes, you think of what book? Judges, yes. The judges, end of the book, the people did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, what else do you see here? Anything that you have a question about, David? Okay, thank you. Yes, yes, that is right. Uh, the King James does use also, I believe, like five times in the Old Testament, it uses Jehovah. But uh, one of them is Genesis 22, verse 14. But the New American Standard, I mean, excuse me, the American Standard uses it thousands of times. Thousands of times. Uh. Sarah? Kind of a, a, a weird observation, I guess. It hadn't occurred to me before that eating meat would have been so closely um, associated with sacrifice for them that that would have been the main time when they would have eaten meat. Yes. When they brought their sacrifice to the Lord, and it wasn't like a normal thing. So that explains why. He has to go through and say, right, it's okay if you have a hamburger yes. or a steak burger. Just treat it like a deer burger. I think, it I think you're right. I think it shows us how rare it was for them to eat meat without offering sacrifice. 
Um, it, it just doesn't seem to have been a common practice, a common luxury that they could afford. And, and so this is, uh, this is why they may be used to every time they eat meat, offering a sacrifice. And he's saying, listen, you can eat meat in these places, but you cannot offer the sacrifices. I also think it's interesting, if you look at verse 15 again, that in verse 15, he says at the end of that verse, that when you eat meat, these concerns about being clean or unclean don't apply. The clean and the unclean may eat of it. That statement is also made in verse 22. The unclean and the clean may eat of it. What happened if someone who was unclean ate a piece off? Leviticus 7, 20, 21 says they're cut off from among the people. It's not true about eating meat in general. You don't have to worry about ceremonial cleanness to eat meat. Now again, whatever purpose God has for that, he has it for our good. It is for our good that God has said these things. Okay? Now, let's, let's deal with the history of Israel here. Which kings made concerted efforts to tear down the altars in the nations, to smash their gods, and to have a central place where God would worship? Which kings made concerted efforts to do that? Josiah and Hezekiah. Josiah and Hezekiah. Asa tore down a lot of altars, uh, but they made central places of worship. I find this, uh, this statement interesting. Think this made in 2 Kings 18 and verse 22, and then it's in Isaiah 36. Isaiah 36 and verse 7. When Assyria is invading the land of of Judah and they're at Jerusalem's door, the king of Assyria sends this message. Don't think Hezekiah is going to save you. Or don't listen to his words when he tells you the Lord will deliver you. Isn't in his high places that Hezekiah tore down? You remember the king of Assyria says that? He doesn't understand Israel's religion. He doesn't understand that Hezekiah was doing the right thing in these verses in tearing down these other places of worship and establishing a central sanctuary. He doesn't understand that. And he uses that against Hezekiah's trust in the Lord instead of understanding that it was because he trusted him. Like no king before him or after him. That he did those things. And where are some other places in the Old Testament that you see eating of blood? Another place in the Old Testament that eating of blood comes into the account. Do you remember that? Oh, he tells Noah that in Genesis 9 in verse 4, but also it's in Saul's time. Remember that Saul said, no man is to eat today until I'm avenged of my enemies. Well, they defeat their enemies and then they start seizing the spoil and they're eating the meat with the blood still 
in it. And they call and they build an altar and they slaughter the animals and they bleed them properly before they eat them. Uh, but that's 1 Samuel 14 verses about 30 through 35. The others in Genesis 9 verse 4 that Tony mentioned. That also comes to play in the New Testament. In Acts 15 verse 20. In verse 20. Yeah, James. We got that question a lot, but yet the problem. It was not a big part of their culture, but it happened once a year. And and they asked, what should we do about this? I said, I think that we should avoid it. You know, I I, I don't, with it mentioned that, it doesn't seem to be limited to the Old Testament. I know people disagree with that, but if we're saying, just avoid it. That doesn't mean that you know, you're having a steak medium. You can't, you can't have a steak medium rare or something like that. It, it means that the animal is properly bled before you sacrifice. Now, I'm sure I would touch upon everything I should have there. Feel free to ask questions. But Bob, Bob is going to answer all your questions uh, Sunday on Deuteronomy 13. But God bless. Thank you. And thank Craig for what he did.